Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode Angel is talking to Nayan Appleton, medical anthropologist and senior lecturer at the Centre for Science and Society at the Victoria University in New Zealand. She speaks to the topic of contraception and the multi-layered causes and effects science has on our bodies. She gives examples of how the intended use of certain technologies create unintended logics and instead of emancipating its users, further subjugate them. She engages us with difficult questions. How to ensure that brown bodies do not become scapegoats in the discourse of climate change? At the end, she shares her advice on how pharmaceutical companies can do better. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're here with Nyan. Is that how I pronounce your name correctly, Nyan? Yes. Perfect. And she's a medical anthropologist who has done a lot of research into contraception and New Zealand. So um, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, Nyan? Uh, hi, uh, Angel. Thank you for having me. Um, I go by Nine, but my full name is Nine Tara. Um, I have done research on um, contraception in India, and I now am shifting my focus to New Zealand, in particular around hormonal contraception. Um, I'm a senior lecturer here at the Center for Science and Society at Victoria University. Um, and I moved to New Zealand about three, three and a half years ago. So in many ways, I'm still um, new to the social scape. Um, but I've been trained in academia long enough, so I understand the academic space um, that I'm in right now. And as you mentioned, Angel, I look at contraception and um, how it has an impact on women's lives beyond the simplistic you know, we get to control our reproductive lives. It is a little bit more complex, and there's multiple layers to hormonal contraception use that I examine. So, for example, um, there is a huge um, awareness now of the long-term health implications of contraceptive use among young people and the, and the, and the, and the myriad ways that they are resisting this, the way young women are resisting hormonal contraception in their lives. The other thing that I also look at is how contraception as technology, as a tool, um, was really developed. I mean, in its initial avatar, it was developed to control the reproductive lives of black and brown women in the global south, really. It was developed in the U.S., but it was intended to um, help sort of propel, um, you know, birth control and spacing and just the concern around population um, and eugenics to a, to a certain degree was, you know, driving this technology. Interestingly, as this is the thing that I find really fascinating about technology, it was intended for one thing, but the place that it got taken up was suburban America. 
And this this is the paradox of technologies when they exist. You design them for one thing, and they still serve that purpose. I mean, I'm not suggesting contraception is not is apolitical in the global south. Now, that's not what I'm suggesting, but rather what it was intended for and how it was used. Um, so those are some of the things that I look at um, vis-a-vis contraception. Um, the other thing that I also look at is access. And I'm just giving you sort of, you know, some of the short points and we can sort of build on this further down as we talk. But in terms of access, um, so what is gained and what is lost when hormonal contraceptives are made uh, non-prescription, as in you don't have to see a physician for that? So in one instance, it's extremely liberating. It recognizes women's agency. You can go to a store and pick up a contraceptive. But what it also sort of does is, and this is the paradox of it, is that it creates a situation where young women who should be able to turn to medicine or medical institutions or the state and hold them responsible for informing them about their biological, hormonal lives and sexual lives, now turn to the market to just pick this up, pick up a pill and be responsible. So this idea that how excess can be a double-edged sword. So um, these are sort of some of the key things that I look at when it comes to contraception. But the thing that I really enjoy doing with this project, and I've enjoyed since I started this research in 2008, 2009, almost a decade, is really troubling or unsettling what is assumed settled about this technology. Because the everyday assumption is that, hey, the contraceptive pill exists, it does a certain thing, which is control reproductive lives. Why mess with something that already works? And my suggestion is, yes, the technology has been around since 1960s. However, the assumption that it is settled is highly problematic. So I constantly sort of work to suggest, let's keep unsettling this. Let's keep revisiting the question of contraception so that we can examine its biases its, its histories, its, its, its prejudices, but also to then think forward, like where can this old technology go, where it's much more um, emancipatory, genuinely emancipatory for women. So that's an extremely long introduction to <laughs> one of my projects. But yes, that's, that's what I study, contraception. No, it's really fascinating. So how did you find yourself, you as an anthropologist, into this area of research? I guess there's uh, two ways to look at this. Uh, I mean, I often joke and I say, oh, I'm an accidental academic. Um, The reason I say that, I think, is because I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be an academic. I always wanted to be a teacher. But once the research bug bites, there was just no turning around, essentially. And that's how I really got into the project. And how did I start looking at this as an anthropologist? So I'm actually trained um, as an interdisciplinary scholar because I was trained, my PhD is in cultural studies. And it's a really interesting journey. Um, cultural studies is not the, you know, the, the automatic assumption people have. is It is a study of culture. But what it is, is um, a really left Marxist school of thought that engages with um, cultural artifacts and looks at how power resides and is perpetuated through artifacts, right? So that's how my training was. Even though my PhD was in cultural studies, I was trained under um, medical anthropologists and SDS scholars, which is science and technology studies, um, which I'm pretty sure your audiences know a lot about. Um, 
So while training under these scholars, um, Hugh Gusterson being one, Roger Lancaster being another, um, I was really interested in the pharmaceutical world in India. And one of the best advice a mentor can give in anthropology is go to where you're curious about and see what's happening there. So here in the summer of 2008, I show up in India and, you know, I'm hanging out because I'm originally from India. So my parents um, were in India. So here I'm hanging out in my parents' living room, you know, trying to read everything that I can get my hands on. And television is what I start watching with my mom. And these are these really bizarre television Indian dramas. And I'm really not into the narrative of the shows, but, you know, because I'm not living there. So I don't know what's happening. But the thing that gets my attention is these shows clearly um, targeted towards Indian women had ads every like seven minutes or so, right? And in 2008, the leading advertisements for, for this for this one product, the eye pill, which is the morning after pill. So here I was sitting in India looking to see what was happening in this field side that I really was curious about, about the pharmaceutical world there. And I had no intention of looking at contraception really. At that point, everybody in my world was talking about the reproductive politics in India and, you know, things like IVF turning around, um, surrogacy. And I thought I would do something along those lines and see, you know, the medical interventions there. But rather, these ads started appearing on TV, and I could not ignore them. I mean, these ads are phenomenal. Um, and I've written about this, so if your audience is curious, they could sort of go to the writing and click on the advertisements or just Google search IPIL advertisements. They were really interesting because they were hyper-gendered, but they also promised emancipation. So, And that is where the inquiry really started. And... Um, so here I, you know, go back and I'm put a proposal together and start reading in that world, you know, because I was always interested in India as a site. I was interested in pharmaceuticals as another site. And here I'm being trained under medical anthropologists, I'm under SDS scholars. So all of these things sort of come together and it really feels like the project found me. At that point, nobody was writing about contraception in India. I mean, this is 2008, 2009. I mean, we, well, let me be careful. People were writing about regular contraceptives, but they weren't talking about this huge visual manifestation of the project, which is what I also do, how media impacts medicine. And so essentially, once the project found me in, you know, 10 years later, it still got its grip on me. So, um, and it's fascinating and it's lovely and I never get bored of it. So this is how I found my project or the project found me or this is how I ended up in this space, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I guess with this sort of research, you get to see sort of like the development of the technology and how it's impacting people as time goes on as well, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is the thing, um, you know, and I've mentioned this earlier about unsettling presumed settled technologies. So the contraceptive pill, which you think is a settled technology, once it shows up in media spaces, it sort of takes on its own life. And I'm going to say something in Hindi, um, and then I'll translate it. It is uh, it basically goes, "Kaman se nikla hua teer, aur jaban se nikli hui baat kabi wapis nahi aati." So once the bow has left the arrow, oh sorry, once the arrow has left the bow. And once the word has left your mouth, you cannot take it back. So once you take a technology like the morning after pill, which is where my focus really sort of narrowed down, 
and you you know put it in advertisement campaigns across India from television to billboards to magazine spreads you put it in the public sphere right the media scapes and people start reading them people start seeing them people start consuming the technology what happens though is intended use creates an unintended logic not necessarily just unintended use so that's one side of it but it's a new logic that emerges around it. For example, I'll give you give you an example. So, so when I was doing my interviews, and in, in, I'm an anthropologist and an ethnographer. So when I'm doing field work, I talk to a lot of people. So when I was doing my field work in India, I was talking to these really fantastic, brilliant, amazing young women, a college-going middle class um, in Delhi. And so one of the recurring themes about their consumption of the morning after pill was, oh. It's better for me to take one pill, maybe once or twice or thrice a month, as opposed to taking the regular slow-release, long-acting um, contraceptive, which is the regular pill, like the 27-day pill, on a regular basis. Oh, because, you know, it might be less hormones or maybe even the same amount. So, like, this logic, which is not sort of placed anywhere, it's not discussed anywhere, just becomes an automatic way to engage with this that's been this technology so again what you imagine as the intended logic of a particular technology definitely gets morphed into something and and Stuart Hall writes about something called decoding in, in media messages right so there are media messages and, and you encode them with certain things but how the audience reads it it's called agent of possibilities and the reading of these messages they read what they wish to read in them or what they think they're reading in it. And this is not to critique these amazing, brilliant young women, but to suggest that we have to look at the way once technology makes it into media space, how it gets decoded and relived and reimagined. Just the same way when the contraceptive pill, again, I'm going back to what I mentioned earlier, was created as a pill that would deal with, you know, this booming population in the global south, really got taken up by white middle-class women in suburban America. And that is the unintended logics, right? And this is how the technology, even as it develops, even as it's being imagined and articulated in different spaces, once it makes it into a sphere, it cannot be taken back and it lives with its own logics there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So you've talked a lot about media as well. I was wondering what examples that you've seen from the different places that you've worked in so far and how that's affected people, like examples of media and contraception? Well, one of the key sites, so my, my own research, the one that I'm converting into a book right now, looks at how media images impacted contraceptive usage, right? But if you look, you probably know this, but the US and New Zealand are the only two countries in the world that allow... Um, direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceutical products. At least that's what it was the last time I checked. And what that allows is, is pharmaceutical companies to advertise certain images directly to audiences. In New Zealand, it's much more sort of curtailed, it's much more careful, it's much more cautious. In the U.S., it's much more um, aggressive, for lack of a better term. Um, but when you look at advertisement, advertisements and advertising of contraceptives, 
you often see, and this is across the globe. I mean, I've lived and worked in sort of three and four continents at this point. Um, you often see a rhetoric of underpinned by an empowerment, like it is empowering to use contraception. And don't get me wrong, it absolutely is. To have control over your reproductive life as women is is, is supremo. It's like absolutely, absolutely important. But that is not where empowerment begins and ends, right? I mean, that's the thing. That's what media images do. They create an ideology that this is this is your solution to a much more complex problem, right? So if you can't convince your partner to use a condom, and you know, I'll give you example at this point of of India. So you know, women, if you are not an earning member, if you're a poor woman, you really are at the receiving end, not only just of your husband, you in a sense become a public commodity. And even sex workers in India could not force their clients to use condoms because one of the things that became sort of pivotal around there was like historically, oh, I can get pregnant, that is a problem, and therefore you would be responsible for a child. But then the pill, the emergency contraceptive pill, it's 100 rupees, which is roughly $2, um, would be like, oh, I'll buy the pill for you. So, so true empowerment doesn't lie. So is it empowering to not to take the pill or is it empowering to be able to tell your partner, hey, I'd like you to use a condom? So, I mean, so this is where media images create this idea that, oh, the pill is attachment to life and modernity, quote unquote, um, and progress and empower woman, empowered womanhood and sexual revolution. Those are just images and ideological messages that go with it, as opposed to the really complex reality that women live within. So in a way, media images, not always, but they serve um, a really interesting purpose. They inform, but they also create attachments to things that may not necessarily be enabled by a particular product. I mean, this is Consumer Studies 101, right? I mean, this is... Um, this is nothing that I need to really explain. This is how desire is created. Then a product promises to help you achieve that desire. So, yeah, so this is why I, I study media images alongside contraception and, and contraceptive in media because it hides or it subverts um, in interesting ways. No advertisement really exists out there detailing the sort of long-term health implications or the studies that have been done to suggest that it increases, um, you know, your risk for a depression or mental health issues. And, and these are studies that are being done. Um, but these are small-scale studies across the globe. So it's, it's hard to create a proper media, realistic media image around that. So It's interesting what you say, and I mean, I know this is a common knowledge by now that sort of like women are expected to take responsibility for um, contraception and um, things like that, but I was just thinking, like, they have male contraception now, so what's sort of your opinion that maybe the companies push one product more than the other, or what's sort of the underlying social dynamics with what they're advertising Right. So to just quickly talk about the male contraceptive pill and how typically women are made responsible. So when the female or the pill, the contraceptive pill is the only medicine in history that's called just the pill, which is amazing. But yes, but the male contraceptive pill was forever under research phase. 
So Nellie Orson's written this amazing book. It's called The Male Pale, and and it goes into for decades the male concept of pale has been sort of researched and you know to ensure that the impacts on on, on men are minimal and also sort of coming to terms with the fact how do you in a society advertise and sell Viagra alongside the male concept of pill and underpinned with this idea that women's bodies are much more expendable and much more easy to experiment with because the concept of pill when it was released for women was under research phase for, for a very limited time so you know taking responsibility for reproductive lives needs to be a shared burden absolutely in the global north or sort of societies where women are um, relatively speaking, you know, more vocal, empowered, have jobs, have economic um, rights. Um, that is absolutely the right direction we're going in. But now in places like India, it is slightly more complex because this new technology, which is the male contraceptive uh, contraception, gets really deeply embedded in the local politics of, of, of class, poverty and religion and caste. So I'll give you an example. So um, one of the pieces where I started my research is um, in India in the 1970s, a state of emergency was declared. But essentially, in its quest to quote-unquote modernize and be like the modern global north, the state mandated sterilization camps. And essentially, men were dragged into these sterilization camps and vasectomies were performed. And there were incentives from like blankets to like, um, you know, a kg of petrol or desi keys, um, you know, to cook and stuff or, or small plots of land. So, you know, interesting incentives were given to people to have vasectomies, sometimes forced vasectomies. Now the and there were other things that were happening. I'm not saying this is the only. This is not a. This is not a causation, but this and but it's a correlation. But what this did is basically it collapsed the government. There was there was absolutely no confidence in the government. You know the the state of emergency was declared. So so male vasectomy led to this this sort of mobilizing and and justifiably so. What is interesting though is sterilization camps did not stop existing. They just changed the focus and started looking at women to the point it was last year, 2018, 2017, legislation was passed to make sterilization camps illegal in India, finally, because, you know, we'd had a large number of deaths. Um, young, women were dying, basically, in these camps, in these sterilization camps. But so this idea that male contraception allows you to share responsibility sounds good. But again, with technology, and this is the scary part about technology, who gets to use it on who? or on whom and under what conditions. And my biggest fear with this is this technology will be used again on poor brown men in countries like India. We've got to, you know, have men partake in this as well. Sounds great so far. But what are the nutritional requirements? What are the long-term impacts? Will this be true free will or will this be forced? Who's going to implement them? All of these questions are really important. And, you know, Arundhati Roy writes about this and, you know, and, and there is no, I mean, quite honestly, a feminist as brilliant as her. But she says, you know, poor men in places like India are superbly subjugated to the logics of capitalism and they too can become victims of these technologies. 
So what may seem emancipatory, unless fully accommodating everyday lives and conditions, may cease to be as such. So um, sure, it allows for sharing the burden, but we have to be careful with sharing the burden and not transferring the burden. And, and you know, I'm really careful about these technologies, not because I don't trust technology. It's because I believe that technology are deeply, inherently positive with a lot of potential for true change, for really enabling a much more just society. But it is the conditions under which they're often taken up that are the problem. It seems like context and governments seem to have a big impact on how these technologies are utilised, especially when you compare it to your context in India and then other places like here in New Zealand. It's vastly different. Absolutely. I mean, and this is really important, you know, um, because, um, and I'm sure you'll see this, and I'm sure your audience will see this, and this is something sort of, as my, pro, you know, the project is sort of developing and, and I'm writing, I recently reviewed a book um, and it basically, you know, in the in the quote unquote woke population, the liberals, um, there is this concern about climate change, justifiably so. I'm worried about. It. I think it's the greatest danger that we face. But the temptation often to couch this in population, right? Like, oh my God, there's so many people. That's the problem, which automatically shifts the lens of the problem onto you know, black and brown bodies reproducing or reproducing, right, quote-unquote, um, in places like India. China's okay because they've got, you know, they've got a quote-unquote cap on it. And what that creates is the ability to use logics and technologies to subjugate people to an unfair life condition. Makes perfect sense that technologies can be used in various ways. And to be honest, a lot of this stuff in India, like I didn't even really know either, not to the full extent that you've explained now, thinking about it now. Like I'm constantly aware of language and, and how certain words are used. You know, so the minute you start talking about climate change and you say instantly start focusing on population as opposed to, you know, what was it last year? They released the number of 99 corporations that contribute to most of the pollution in the world, right? Yeah. But we've got to shift the gaze away from that because capitalism cannot allow for a full exposure of that reality, right? And this is where brown bodies become scapegoats in this larger project. And I'm not suggesting um, that populations are um, not a concern, what my sort of anxiety or my fear is um, that capitalist expansion requires people to consume. So, so just as a, a small caveat, so India rough has a population of roughly 1.2 billion people, right? Um, a large majority of that are poor working class rural, so they're not a consuming middle class. So even hypothetically, you say, Half of India's population, seven, seven to eight hundred thousand million, are um, middle class, which is more than the entire U.S. population. So that's a huge consumer base, right? Even if you cut it down, like just even in your most conservative, imagine three hundred as the number, right? As as the consuming middle class or the elite who can consume these these products that are created um, in different countries, but you know the wealth is generated at certain hubs, right? 
if you ask them to consume those products and you create those products as a way to generate wealth for for particular societies and economies, that is where the problem lies, right? Because a rural farmer in India ought not to be a concern as contributing to climate change through pollution or, or you know just creating global warming. No, it's the fact that these corporations create desire in certain segments of society, and when you know these are it's a post uh, post socialist state, so you know socialist economies opening up. India started liberalizing in ninety one, so that's a huge market. Market consum- consumption leads to waste and, and and pollution. You know from this moment of production to its um, actual consumption and, and waste. So. It, these are complex cycles, right? These are very, very complex cycles. And I'm careful not to um, profess a solution to everything. But I am really sort of pushing the idea that requests, that begs the world, liberals particularly, in the climate change world, to think carefully and not blame poor black and brown women as the problem. And therefore, not always think that contraception is the solution. To think of more intricate, interesting ways to to think through the problem, and then the solutions, um, as opposed to you know, thing like, hey, let's introduce contraception to these women so they can quote unquote be empowered. But in reality, you just want to con- control their reproductive lives in order to meet a particular agenda goal, which has been going on since um, pre uh, since colonial India, really. So. It seems like behind like certain companies or like certain um, ideologies, something that should be good, like contraception in an ideal world, turns into something that controls, um, manipulates and sort of distorts society in the way that certain groups of people want it to in a way, doesn't it? It's just so interesting. Going off that a bit, I was just wondering, because like, you do say you're talking a lot about um, medicine, um, sciences, politics. What is it like for you being an anthropologist working in these sort of fields? I know medical anthropology has been around for quite a while, but like, just from your own experience, like, what is it like? It's incredibly interesting and constantly exhausting because there's so much to be done. <laughs> I'll answer this question in two ways. First, personally, and then second, as a way to encourage students to work in these fields, to work in this field, and in, in to to really ask more of technology. Really, all technologies, right? So, personally, it's extremely rewarding, and it's highly complex. You know, I'm a I'm a cis woman, I'm, you know, um, uh, feminist, uh, I'm a woman of color. Um, in so many ways, I'm privileged, but in so many ways, I am not privileged. At certain points, I really belong in academia. At certain points, I just don't belong in academia. So, the, you know, these are really interesting, complex um, negotiations that I, I do continually, which I think really helps me. It slows down my, I guess, my writing output because I do this really interdisciplinary work to the point my last article has been in and out of three journals. And they're like, oh, it's really interesting, but it's not a good fit. So it's really hard for me to find the perfect fit because I'm writing in so many different spaces, right? On the other hand, I think this is really important work because 
I mean, you know, it's not like I'm dying out or anything. Like, I've got a long, for hopefully long um, working career in front of me. But in terms of young people, millennials, um, next generation of scholars coming in, I think our task is this, to ask technology, when it is developed, to be really cognizant of marginalized communities. They should not be allowed to develop technologies that serve agendas of non-marginalized people, because that will forever change the landscape, which would mean that people that are designing these technologies, people that are testing these technologies, the people that are conceptualizing these, advertising these, are not the same old, same old. It is new people from spaces that have not historically been given a voice. So that is why this work is interesting and important, and this is why I teach, and this is why I hope um, the next generation of scholars really take on. And you don't have to be in academia. God, there's so many amazing spaces. I mean, your own podcast is an amazing example of this, right? You make available really interesting and important ways for people to think critically. And I think when you talk of technology, and again, I know that your entire podcast is around technology and gender and technology is a huge, I mean, there's like books and books and books written about it. I think like, I think I have a full notebook full of notes around this, but but gender and technology is an opening space to allow for more progressive technologies to exist. So yeah, so this is why it's interesting to me. I see it as a very, um, I see the space rife with tension, but also full of potential. So you're talking about how you're working in lots of fields, obviously science, medical, social, and um, that you're working in the Interdisciplinary Center for Science and Society, right? That's correct, Science and Society. Yeah. Could you explain that a bit? Oh, sure. So I've been here two weeks. I absolutely love it. Um, I'm not going to say it's an experiment because I don't know if it is not, but it was started by um, two of my colleagues, brilliant, brilliant um, feminist activists and scholars, um, Rebecca Priestley and uh, Rianne Salmon. And they both, are environmental scientists um, and they're written prolifically around that, but they also really care about communicating science. So the team is interdisciplinary. We have a, a science fiction writer and other medical anthropologists. We have a Maori um, astronomer on team. So essentially the idea is to create the next generation of science students and science scholars to do this critical thinking that is required of communicating science to audiences but also asking science to do better. Does that make sense? Like my entire project is to, you know, this is what when I, you know, I often lecture um, and give guest talks on contraception and I generally end my talk with this. I'm like, I'm not suggesting that we don't need contraception. My true feminist project is to ask pharmaceutical companies, the science environment, the medical institutions, on the one hand, we want much better contraception. We want contraception that we can, really trust and it's it's evolved and it's been researched extensively but at the same exact moment not a moment before not a moment after but at the exact same moment that I ask for better contraception more research on contraception more money put into research for women's contraception I also want to create a society that allows women to say no to that same contraception right because that's the feminist ideal like I want better but I want to have the absolute ability and choice and option to say no. 
And that, I think, is the true sort of utopic, well, utopia is always in making, but based where we can help technology goes, right? Make it better, but also create conditions under which people can say no to it. And, you know, I think the challenge in the, in, in, as I go into this uh, program and, and teach students, the next generation of people who will communicate and do science, is to suggest that we can be critical of science, ask it to do better, ask it to be less gendered, ask it to be less racist, ask it to be less ableist, but we still have to trust science and scientific knowledge because I'm really worried, weary of the anti-science lobby, the climate change deniers, the the anti-vaxxers. I mean, that's a really dangerous paradigm. So, you know, it's a really fine line to walk between being critical of science and scientific knowledge in order to show it its biases, but still believing that it is underpinned by a particular good intentioned ethos, right? As opposed to the complete denial of science, like science is all just hogwash, or I'll give you another set of statistics to prove my point, right? So that's a dangerous world, like to not trust science. And Donna Haraway is just brilliant and just wrote about this like ages ago. And she's basically made the case that we need to walk closer towards science as opposed to further away from it, all the while asking it to do better. No, yeah, I agree. One thing we've learned while doing this podcast is that it's not really, well, it's never the technology that's at fault. It's the social structures and the politics and the sort of communities that these technologies have become a part of, like how people have um, sort of adopted technologies or like created ideologies around them, or like you said, how governments have used them as tools. But the technologies themselves, although some people tend to blame these technologies, them and themselves are not at fault because they, at the end of the day, are just a tool, really. Yes and no, but yes, mostly yes. Um, in, so you, in the 70s and the 80s, there's a lot of um, STS scholarship, and Brilla Toro wrote right about this. There's like, there's a moment in when and where a technology is introduced where it is highly debated. And it is in that moment of debate that you can really shape how it's going to exist and live, right? So they're not innocent. Technologies are not innocent, but the reason they're not innocent, it, but it is because they come imbibed with certain logics. And those logics exist in certain spaces where they were created. There's so many examples. I mean, why is it that, you know, artificial intelligence has these hyper-feminized voices, these robots that have been created? Who is creating these robots that look like tiny Barbies and speak like these uh, forever subjugated women? Like, do you see what I mean? Like, and, and it's the same thing with concept of technology like so you know when you think of technology you you think it comes from that sort of germinal sort of term technique right technique to make human life better up till now well not up to now but up to a certain part in history human life was equivalent to male human life male white male human life i think when we come to terms with the fact that technique or technologies are used to create or make better human life. And human life is not necessarily white male anymore, or well it is, but it is, it is part of the mix as opposed to there is hope. 
So, you know, so from that initial moment when that wheel is created to help the prehistoric man and woman sort of move things around, from that moment onwards, technology, that wheel should have stayed in the realm of men and women because it was in both realms, right? I mean, to this day, if you go into rural India, you used to see the wheel being used to rock wheel, used to ground wheat for making food, right? So, again, this is a, a really interesting slash I'm not going into this example, but you get the idea. From from that germinal moment, technology is full of potential. But the only way to harness that potential is to put in place people that are not caught up in the old enlightenment ethos. And human life is not limited to male or white male, um, but is much more complex. And the minute we sort of come to that then technique is used or skill is used to make all human life um, better, bearable, equal, egalitarian, empowered. No, yeah. Um, when we talk to a, a lot of people that design apps or design technology, a lot of time we ask them is if during their design process or during the point where they're creating these technologies, if they are thinking about how it's going to affect people, if they are thinking about who it's going to exclude, what's going to be the implications of their technology, and what's sort of the thinking behind this, the larger implications of how their technology will impact society, not just their user. And... I don't know. We've found that with some companies, it seems like they're trying, like they're trying to think of these larger implications, hiring anthropologists, hiring social scientists. But then again, there's a lot of people that still don't see the value in this sort of research, the research that you're doing that mm -hmm. sort of helps them see the larger picture and then hopefully, like you said, create a world where their technologies are using being used in a way that makes it better, that mm -hmm. includes everyone. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point, Angel, and something, you know, I think about often, um, you know, when um, social scientists and anthropologists are asked to be on these, these sort of multidisciplinary design teams, it's really sort of reassuring you like, oh, this is great. My students are going to get jobs. This is fantastic. But I think we have, and, and again, I don't work in this world, so I'm careful how I phrase this. But the true question that drives this is, are they bringing on these sort of diverse, marginalized sets of people who have historically not had a voice onto these things in order to find the language that they can use to sell whatever it is that they were going to always sell? Or are they actually willing to slow down, step back, and really think about what it is that we are doing? Because if it is just increasing the number of people we sell to, that is not itself an emancipatory potential of technology, right? It's not like, oh, I'm creating an app. How do we make this app more accessible and friendly to um, young women who are in wheelchairs? No, you've got to step five steps back and be like, we want to create an app designed by and for young women to see where are good parking spaces or what, you know. So you, you, you go back all the way and you create app for 
And again, there's no profit in that, and therein lies the problem, right? Oh、uh, yeah, exactly. And and this is you know these are really deep problems that go、um, multiple steps. And again, you know it is.、Um, Sometimes I'm off the off, off the mindset that asking the right questions is half the battle won. I think being aware of it is good, and sort of working with the world you know we are in, with the with, with the hope to someday change it, while acknowledging that perhaps we can't change it right away. And this is how I think about with、um, with contraception, right? Like the assumption that oh the pill exists, we can't make it better. Oh, let's make it better. How do we make it better? And this is this is what they do to make it better. Instead of taking the pill, you know, once a day at the same time of the day, how about you just patch it onto your skin? Oh, better still, why don't you make it a vaginal ring and insert it? Oh, you forget stuff. Oh, let's just put a jab. Let's just, you know, just、um, give you an injection. So here, what has happened in the process is the exact same technology. Is marketed, sold for convenience or、um, particular trends. Like for example, the、uh, the, the vaginal ring is under severe scrutiny in the U.S. because you know a couple of women have died. Not enough research is done on that, right? It's about like, oh, how do we ensure? So,、um, you know, Depo-Provera is, is the injection is is a slow release injection that is given to women. But in the global south, there's a huge pushback against it because women die. But this sort of work and research needs to be done way before it shows up. And then women die, and they're like, "Oh, wait a minute!" So this is this is the request of technology and people who make technologies, be it、um, contraception or anything else, is take multiple steps back and see the implications on women's lives. Don't just create new ways to deal with the same technology or market it to different sets of people in order to increase your quote unquote market share. That's not progress or progressive or empowering for anybody. Rather. Go back and imagine new ways for women to control their reproductive lives. It makes me think a bit about corporate responsibility, but、mm-hmm. not in the sense that we're used to talking about it. Because、mm-hmm. obviously, usually when we say corporate responsibility, we're talking about like the environment or、mm-hmm. workers. But in this sense, it's almost like the responsibility at the start. To actually、mm-hmm. make sure what the actual product is, or what that what everything is, to actually take the responsibility to properly do your research, to properly understand everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when looking at scientific technologies, I'd say you know, corporate responsibility is a is a really interesting ball game and an interesting conversation on and of itself. But scientific responsibility. Let's let's think about scientific responsibility or technological responsibility, and really see your own biases. You know, like the pill, like was deeply, deeply embedded in a racist eugenics politics, right? I mean, and I'm not suggesting it's the worst thing ever. I mean, I have um, met um, in New Zealand um, Dame,、uh, Dame Margaret Sparrow, amazing. Powerhouse of a woman, and worked so hard to have contraception in New Zealand because New Zealand was dealing with its own sort of puritan, puritanical、um, ethos and Victorian、um, thing. But worked so hard to get contraception pill here, right? And that's an important, really, really, really important project because women need access and the ability to control their reproductive lives. But we can now go back and see how. 
in other places where it was designed, because it was designed in the U.S., and then the clinical trials were done in Puerto Rico. The minute that was happening, I know, you know, we were not at that moment in history where people were thinking about marginalized communities, but somebody should have been like, hey, time out. What is this project really trying to do? Is it really that, why is it so important to control the reproductive lives of brown people? Like, what exactly is your anxiety? And then when you start unpacking that, then you arise, arrive at a, a very complex site of knowledge production. And it is that complexity that needs to be completely unraveled and sort of embedded with new, genuinely progressive politics as opposed to progress under the guise of selling something new. Do you see what I mean? No, absolutely. You yeah. also suggest that at that point they should probably have people that are in each sort of country. Like if they're putting something out into one place, then they should have research done in that place before they put it out, not just like as is done in a lot of things, have it done in like say the pill by mm -hmm. white European males yeah. and then have it given out to everyone but... <laughs> So, you know, by that logic, you'd say, oh, the pill should have been researched in India and therefore, you know, been part of the entire production process in India from, you know, its moment of conceptualization to the moment of utilization. Now you travel to India and I've done research in India. Middle and upper middle classes in India are as problematic um, as viewers, as participants, as project makers, as anybody else in the world. So, you know, India has a, a deeply problematic caste system, right? The constitution, the state is all organized and run by people that are upper in the caste system, educated, male, wealthy. So even, even when you get to a place like India and you're like, oh, the people there themselves, the quote-unquote people is such a mixed bag, like who really determines these conditions in the spaces, right? So it, is, it is a really, really, really... So, for example, the concept of pill in India, the one that I really look at is the morning after pill. It is not manufactured or sold by any foreign pharmaceutical. It is actually made, produced, sold, marketed by local Indian pharmaceutical companies, which are a powerhouse onto themselves. That's another conversation, so I'm not getting into that. They're local, absolutely and entirely local. They're Indian in every which way, owned, operated, manufactured in India. But that does not take away from their ability to imbibe the global north logic of population control in my writing. Because it's basically a trajectory that I'm sort of uh, mapping, right, over time. So in the 80s and, 90, uh, 80s and mid 90s, there were advertising campaigns, um, again, back to media, um, put out by the state, which said things like, Hamdo Hamarido, now that's a Hindi phrase, which means us two are two, which is we two, husband, wife, very heteronormative, will have only two children, invariably one male, one female, but that's not the point. But the, but the, 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 the middle class ethos, and I'm part of that. My parents had two children. My, both my parents have, um, my mother has five siblings. My dad has three siblings. Each of the siblings have only had two kids. That's it, right? Because they were part of the modernizing India narrative. And the modernizing India narrative required to be modern, progressive, uh, reproductive, 
life planners. So one or two children is a sign of being intelligent and modern and participating in, in India's, you know, growth and, and, and forward um, facing, future facing um, project. And this is where it gets complex. So if the middle classes in India themselves are so, so deeply caught up in this, and I've written about this, they invariably blame poor women who have so little control over their reproductive lives sometimes. Um, they blame them. They're like, oh, you should have access to it or it's so easy to like and instead of offering solidarity and support to help these women they actually didn't blame them they're very Foucauldian blame the victim um logic applies and it's really interesting to watch so even though your point about oh these technologies should emerge and be embedded only in societies where they you know sort of um the work has been done we have to understand even though societies are deeply deeply classed gendered, racist, patriarchal, homophobic, oh God, name it. <laughs> name it, and those problems exist. I'm not suggesting we can't have technologies. I think you're on the right track, that technologies need to emerge from the communities where they're going to be used within, but that requires a very radical reorganizing of our work, because that would automatically mean a redistribution of um, wealth, do you, do you want me to ask you a really hard question? Oh, goodness. Okay. Would you have any advice for these pharmaceutical companies on <laughs> the right way to go? Um, well, actually, I do. For contraception, I really genuinely do. Um, I mean, my own research is showing this, and um, I'm reading new research on this constantly. Hormones, which is my next project, hormones have impacts on human life, sex hormones in particular. Can you please devise contraception that does not wreak havoc in women's hormonal lives? That's the first thing, right? Second thing, stop putting our toxic waste into our waters and our environment because that has long-term implications for us. I mean, we're talking from infertility to, you know, the foods we eat, right? Um, I often begin a lecture, is capitalism the problem or will it be the solution? And I think that's the chicken and egg, right? And I don't have an absolute answer to that for the holistic thing. But for contraception in particular, I do have a suggestion like, let's do more research on ways to ensure that women have better contraception, not just better ways of delivering it, but better contraception, while hoping and praying that we create a society in, in which women can simultaneously choose to have as many kids as they want, but also have no kids and still be respected and empowered members of society. How would you suggest, like, if you were talking to a company and they're like, how do I do that? I don't know what to do. What steps would you suggest that they should do to get started on doing it properly? Doing, improving contraception? Oh, yeah. Um, well, for, for one thing... Um, just most basics, do focus groups. You talk to a whole bunch of women and they will tell you what contraception and hormonal usage does to them, right? That's the first thing. Then we turn to science and we um, start looking at other ways to help women control their reproductive bias. We don't use this anymore. A lot of people don't use these anymore, at least. You know, there used to be menstrual cups. There used to be similar way. There used to be the female condom. 
Now, it's not perfect. It had a slightly higher failure rate than uh, the, the pharmaceutical contraception. But that does not take away from the fact that it did not have the same health hormonal implications for women's lives as messy. It's, you know, we've also got to step back and see and sell things that don't necessarily make money because the, the female condom, as you know, was a, you don't need to buy it every month. You don't need to spend money either at the state level. It's a cheap pill. I understand that. But you don't need to um, constantly buy that. It, it lasts a while. I mean, you know this. Pharmaceutical lobbies and pharmaceutical companies, and not just contraception, much more complex and beyond that, is the number two lobby in the U.S. after uh, after oil. Now, that itself says something. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't have pharmaceutical corporations because that's ridiculous um, because, you know, we can't go back to, uh, you know, a moment where we did not have the science to help live better lives. But when it comes to women's and marginalized communities, um, reproductive lives, I think the anxiety that is perpetuated through these pharmaceutical companies, through um, the population control lobby, needs to be severely reduced. And I don't, under any circumstances, wish to be sort of couched in the the conspiracy theory group, because that's, you know, a dangerous uh, set uh, to people to be seeing. But in the 60s, when the pill was released, it was the first pill, the first medicine in human history that was taken habitually by healthy bodies. Like, you did not have to be sick to be on the pill, right? You were a functional, healthy adult living everyday life. But you woke up in the morning, opened your medicine cabinet, and you took the pill. In so many ways, again, I write about this because I find it so fascinating, it was the first lifestyle drug, right? You know, it has opened the way for us to become consumers as healthy people of a pharmaceutical product, which actually changes the chemical compositions, the hormonal compositions of our, of our bodies, right? So since then, you become, you know, you get a massage and you become much more easy to target or talk to in terms of other pharmaceutical interventions from be it from you know your on the border cholesterol to ADHD to and again I'm very 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 cautious because I know these are important drugs at what point they are important right there's certain these are on scales your market share will increase by 30% if you give the at risk as opposed to the ones who are actually dealing with high cholesterol, right? Your at risk for cholesterol is supposed to you have high cholesterol. And my parents take cholesterol medicine, so I'm careful of this, right? So this is something to think about in terms of the power of the pill. It is not an old technology. Well, it is an old technology, but it is not a settled technology. And it is not a technology that needs to be ignored like it may or may not have championed or bought in the sexual revolution and you know there's a lot of scholarship around that what it did do is enabled the pharmaceutical revolution in a sense and i think that's really important to keep in mind when you think about gender technologies and unintended logics and consequences i wish we could keep going to be honest (laughs) 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 there's so much to talk about But unfortunately, we've run out of time today. Thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.